Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us for part two of the Dean Coral case. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. Yep. I'm Jess. I'm Brittany. Yep. Um, you know, this is a crazy case. Uh, so much research. Yeah. Like there tons are of research. tons. I mean, like we said in the first and part one last week, um, he had what was it twenty seven or twenty eight known victims? Somewhere around Yeah, there. yeah, I believe twenty eight actually. Um so and we didn't want to um not try to cover all of them. Yeah. So uh, this is also going to be, you know, a longer episode, but it, it'll be worth it. it it's it's crazy. Yeah. So thank you for coming back to True Crimes Untold, the podcast. Uh, let's go ahead and get started. So last week we left off um, on Dean Coral. He is now uh, getting ready to meet his a second accomplice um, with his murders, and that's going to be Elmer Wayne Henley. So in the winter of 1971, Brooks introduced Henley to Coral. Uh, he was actually lured to Coral's house because he was intended to be his next victim. But once they uh, met, started talking, getting to know each other, Coral decided that um, Henley would actually make a better accomplice than than victim for him. So he offered him the same fee um, that he offered to Brooks, which was $200 for any boy he can lure to his apartment. Uh, Coral told Henley he was involved in a white slavery ring operating out of Texas. So that's what he's telling them, you know. Um, obviously, Brooks knows better than that now. Yeah. Henley's new to him. Uh, so he's lying to him, obviously, to try to get him more intrigued in helping him, which is... Do you think that's why? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Do you... I honestly don't know. Either. I mean, it has maybe... to be either to get him to help or for him to think that he's they... not the one murdering these boys. Yeah, or that there's more people involved. Like... Yeah, yeah, that he's not the other one involved, and that's why he's going to get paid is because it's, yeah, yeah. you know, but either way, it's like, who... Does it really fucking no, matter? No. I mean, I would like... you want to get involved in either of those situations? I feel like he had to have, like, seen something in Henley. You know, it, like, some type of, like... Something, something, something evil, maybe. In himself, yes, too, yeah, you know? because this is the first time they're even meeting. And he's yeah. telling him, him that he's involved, you know, he's he's telling him that he's involved in this sex slavery ring yeah. so even then it's like it's fucked up but Henley had a, sh a chance you know what I mean to turn him down he was allowed to leave you know like we said Coral did not want to hurt Henley um after he made him this offer so he did leave um for months Henley ignored Coral's offer you know he kept on asking him to get involved and then in early 1972, he decided to accept the offer because Henley's family was um, really hurting for money. They were in um, financial turmoil. Turmoil, yeah, yeah. So he he did accept the offer, which, again, though, it, it, that was like you wouldn't accept it before, but now you're like my family's struggling. I'll go ahead and do yeah, this. and it's like two hundred dollars per yeah, and then two hundred dollars per person that you bring 
it's like I guess this is the seventies. Yeah. Two hundred is more, but you said it was but you like have fourteen. Yeah, it it was around four equivalent to about fourteen hundred dollars nowadays. So yes, that would help your family, but you're gonna have to lure quite a few boys yeah. to to maybe make a dent in this financial financial turmoil that you guys are in. Um, it didn't say you know what or why you know why they were going through this, but anyway, um. So, you know, like we said, Henley agreed. He took Coral's offer. Uh, then they had their first, they, they did their first abduction together. He, um, at the time, Coral lived at 925 Scholler Street, and he moved there in February 1972. So this is like his 200th like place that he's lived in the last year, basically. He moves around a lot. Um, in Henley's statement to the police after his arrest, he said him and Coral picked up a boy at the corner of 11th and Studewood and lured him to Coral's home on the premise of smoking marijuana. While they were there, they they used a ruse on him, which we did say this in the first episode that they did this to other victims as well, where they had handcuffs. Um, Henley, Coral, or Brooks would place the handcuffs on themselves and they had a secret key hidden, so they were easily able to get out of the cuffs. Clearly, these victims didn't know that there was a secret key. They're thinking, oh, these are my friends. We're hanging out. They're giving yeah. me weed, alcohol. They're not about, they're not thinking I'm going to put on trick. these cuffs. Exactly. And get, you know, um, tackled to the yeah. ground or whatever you know so so he agreed after he saw henley do this and then was able to get out of the cuffs they duped him into putting them on himself and while the cuffs were on him coral then bound and gagged him so right it's like could you imagine that'd be terrifying how terrifying like, like you yourself have just Locked your your arms, yeah. your wrists behind your back in handcuffs, and these just that people. Moment where that realization sinks in. Yeah, you know? yeah, it just became real very fast for him, you know. So, um, Henley ended up leaving the boy and Coral alone. Um, that's what Coral asked him to do, so he did, uh, and he believed that he was going to be selling this boy into a sex slavery ring, which is what Coral told him was the case. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't the case, which we all know, and the identity of that victim still remains unknown, sadly. Yeah. Um, so, on March 24th, 72, 18-year-old Frank Aguirre was leaving his family restaurant when Henley and Brooks once again convinced him, hey, come to Quarles with the promise of alcohol and weed. You know, same thing yep. as usual. Yep. Um, Aguirre was actually already an acquaintance of Henley's, um, and he drove his own car when they went there. Yeah, so. yeah. They fo- He actually followed them back, which I ca- was kind of surprised when I read that. Yeah, we never found they, out what they did with the car, Yeah, right? no. Um, oh, actually, yes. We That'll come further. Okay. Which, this is just, I shouldn't have said yes. It's just an assumption of mine. Once we get to it, I'll bring it back up. Um, but yeah, I'm not 100% sure on that. But I think maybe. So, okay. Yeah. So, um, but they allowed him to follow them back, yeah. which is they. I mean, it probably made him feel more comfortable. Exactly. Like, yeah. You have to leave your car. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's very true. <clears throat> um, so, once at Coral's residence, um, I guess Aguirre picked up, you know, yeah. he picked up a pair of handcuffs. And once he picked them up, 
Uh, Dean immediately pushed him onto a table and handcuffed him. Um, Henley later claimed um, that he didn't know that Coral was going to do this yeah, to and he Agwire. Actually, he actually asked Ag- uh, Hen- Coral not to kill him. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't that yeah. wasn't happening. As soon as he picked up those handcuffs, it, like, immediately, I don't know, something just hit Coral, I guess, and he... It said he literally jumped up and pounced on this kid. Like, he was mad. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. So, after that, um, after murdering Aguirre, he convinced him, or he revealed to Henley that there was no slavery ring. And he convinced him murdering the previous boy that Henley had helped him lure. Um, Then Henley buried his body on High Island following Coral's directions. Brooks later makes statements when he writes his, you know, when he talks to police that says that Henley enjoyed inflicting pain and as well as being very sadistic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so on April 20th, what, not even a month later, um, Mark Scott was a 17-year-old friend of both Henley and Brooks. Um, He was killed at Coral's Schuller Street address. Uh, He was strangled and buried also at High Island, um, but his they said he fought like hell he even tried he even tried stabbing his attackers yeah um yeah he fought like hell yeah his yeah. parents um actually received a postcard from mark a few days after his disappearance which i know happens more than once in these cases yeah yeah he had them write letters and make phone calls yeah. and mm-hmm. the postcard said i'm in austin for a couple of days i found a good job i'm making three dollars an hour um obviously his parents didn't buy it he was a junior in high school he left without saying a word. Yeah. He didn't take yeah. his motorcycle. Um, so they knew something. They knew something about it happened to him. Yeah. And uh, they had, they never heard from him again after yeah. that. Yeah. Just like all the other kids, you know. Um, mm-hmm. It's like they all had families and were in school still. You know, they wouldn't just up and leave. And these parents know their kids. Yeah. Even with even a printed letter. It doesn't even have to be necessarily handwritten just the wording you know yeah Yeah, you've raised these kids you know so they knew that it wasn't true at all yeah and uh actually they did an um an interview even at 83 years old his mother was quoted in an article saying sometimes I see someone walking down the street and I think it's my son I think he's come home and it's just like her whole life you know her whole life yeah constantly just hoping that she would see him walking down the street yeah and we've heard this a lot in other podcasts too you know just when you lose a child or somebody that Mm. close a sibling you know um you you do see them in other people a lot you know what I mean and you it's sad you live your life like especially knowing now you know what they known going through the trials and everything what actually happened to your son yeah I can't even imagine you you live with with that that, you know I mean there's definitely families out there who you know look at it before and after type of things people Mm -hmm. can move past it not in the sense of where they still live their lives and they have other children that they have to still live for yeah you know and still work for but it's it changes your life forever, yeah. you know, so. I don't know how I'd go on. Yeah, yeah, honestly. yeah, exactly. As a parent, As a parent yeah, definitely. So, uh, before Coral vacated the house on Schuler Street on June 26, Henley, Brooks, and Coral abducted, murdered two youths named Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. 
In Brooks' confession, he stated that both youths, youths were tied to Coral's bed, and after their torture and rape, Henley manually strangled Balch, then shouted, Hey, Johnny, and shot DeLome in the forehead. The bullet exited through his ear. DeLome pleaded with Henley, Wayne, please don't. Then Henley strangled him. These are people that they know. You know, these are kids that they went to school with that yeah. live nearby them. You know, so when they're, to, first of all, to strangle somebody is such an intimate yeah. thing. You don't just grab on to somebody's neck. You need a certain amount of pressure. It, it, takes, it takes time. It takes time. It's, you know, usually when when you do see strangulation cases it's somebody who was close to the victim and that's definitely the case here um to have to look into somebody's eyes as they're pleading for their life yeah. is just so sadistic i mean i mean to even say hey johnny and so that he looks at you and then you shoot him you yeah know yeah I mean? like, exactly that you, is just so sadistic yeah yeah it's like what how is that even in your head but it is you know so some people are just that way I guess I, I mean people like us will never <laughs> yeah. be able to understand it and it's actually just so interesting you yeah. know so um so Henley like we said Henley then strangled him and they were both buried at High Island Beach the trio then lured 19 year old um named Billy Rigner to the house on uh, Schuler Street they tied him to the plywood board tortured and abused um him which was coral coral was mm -hmm. doing the torturing and the abusing um brooks later claimed that he um that he said to coral to let billy go and the youth was allowed to leave the residence which was pretty surprising yeah. to me obviously coral's the leader like if you would even the piece of shit yeah, why leader. Why all those others and then, you know. I, yeah, because, so I mean, you know, we've seen other ones where they've asked to please not hurt them, to let them yeah. go, you know. and But for some reason, he did let um, Rigner go. Um, so, I'm not sure. Uh, it didn't go into detail. I even tried to look more into it, and I couldn't find um, much more than that. So, um, but at this, at this same house... Coral knocked Brooks unconscious as he entered the house. Coral tied Brooks to his bed and assaulted the youth over and over again before releasing him. <laughs> so now, like now he's doing it to his accomplices. It's like, yeah, it's almost like if he doesn't, I mean, he had been he did, him yeah, before, I mean, he's too. done it before, you know, we've, we saw even before he started murdering these young, um, children, these kids, teenagers that he was just assaulting them, you know, so he, he is a, a rapist. He, yeah. he was doing that. That's what he was first paying Brooks for yeah. was to just bring him in so he could rape and assault them. Um, but it's like, if he doesn't have a victim here and now, because he doesn't take any time off. No, he really doesn't. It's, this is all like a th three to four year period of where he does these 28 victims. So some of them are back to back days, couple yeah. in the same day, but they're all pretty close, but it almost seems like he's just has lost control. You know, if he doesn't have a victim there, he, he knows either Brooks or Henley are there that he can just assault one of them now. So, um, but despite the assault, Brooks continued to assist Coral in the abductions because same thing, he's just too 
far gone yeah. by this point. I mean, I mean, bro, uh, Coral has been had been in his head since he was twelve. Exactly. Years old it's like it's basically like um, Coral has abducted him as well. Yeah, and has just honestly, kept him alive yeah. this whole time. Him and Henley both. I mean, they were both younger. I I mean, obviously they knew right from wrong. Uh, even just admitting the things that they've admitted, they knew what they were doing. Um, I don't think that they were 100% like wanting to do these things, but they're getting paid. They're, they're getting vehicles, you know, bought for them, just everything. And, and I mean, at some point I'm sure they, even though they were young and, you know, naive, they had to think like, at this point, if he goes down, we go down. Exactly. Yeah, like it's just too far. Yeah, like they're just all in it together yeah. for the remainder of the time <laughs> now. So, um, Coral moved to an apartment at Westcott Towers where, in the summer of 1972, he kills two more victims. The first is 17 year old Stephen Sickman. Which, go ahead, Brittany, I'm going to let you talk about him. Yeah, Sigmund, uh, he was last seen leaving a party in the Heights, which was the neighborhood, you know, where Coral got a lot of his victims from. Um, And that was was shortly before midnight on July 19th. Yeah. Uh, He was savagely, savagely bludgeoned in the chest with a blunt instrument. Um, He suffered several fractured ribs before being strangled with a nylon cord, and he was buried in the boat shed. Um, his remains were originally misidentified, and they were not correctly identified until 1994. Um, and wait, no, they were not correctly identified until March 2011. Yeah, Sorry, big yeah. difference there. Which you'll see with a lot of these bodies, um, they did misidentify a lot yeah, of them to begin yeah. with. Yeah, and to I mean, so many bodies. Oh yeah, you know I mean, what that I mean. Would be Nowadays, hard. it's so different. Like the in, yeah. just even their investigation styles and ways is so much more progressed and i'm sure that's why they were able to yeah you know, yeah keep but, identifying but again more like them. it's so sad because like this poor kid is just being misidentified yeah over and parents, over again yeah. and his parents are just hoping to finally put their son to rest yeah. and they get their hopes up each time and then doesn't and I think sometimes they had to, like, they buried them thinking they were one person. And yeah. then they had to, like, exhume Probably, them. Yeah, and, yeah. Bring them know, back like, up and do more, I guess, that would just testing and relive it over Oh, yeah. And over again. I mean, until, I'm sure if, until your child is found. Um, put to rest. It, it put to rest, you know, um, you can have that right you know, that rightful, um, memorial service for them, you probably, that's like an ache that you probably have, you know? So it it is definitely really sad. And then once again, he buried, buried them in the boat shed, you know, along with most of the other victims. Um, on August 21st, Coral goes after, uh, finds his next victim, Roy Bunton. He was 19 years old. Um, Roy disappeared on his way to work at a shoe store. Um, once they got him back to Coral's place, he was gagged and bound, gagged with a Turkish towel and bound with tape over his mouth. Uh, he was shot twice in the head, and he was also buried in the boat shed. And once again, his remains were misidentified in October 73 and were not correctly identified until November of 2011. Yeah, yeah, so basically the same exact thing. Yeah. So, yep. Um, on October 2nd, 1972, uh, they lured two more teenage boys. Uh, their names were Wally J. Simino and Richard Hembry. They were walking to Hembry's home when they um, got stopped by Brooks and um, invited 
to go had you know go to a party so they got into brooks corvette and they were driven to coral's westcott towers apartment um, that evening, Simino is known to have made a call to his mother's house and shouted "Mama" before the connection was terminated. Mm. I know. I it literally like breaks fucks me your up. heart. It really does. I when I was researching and I read that it's he was thirteen. Wait, no, was he thirteen? Um, he was I fourteen. Believe, fourteen. He was yes, 14. he was fourteen years old. Um, so a baby. You yeah. know, that's you know, that's your. That's your baby. Um, and the last thing he was thinking about is his mm-hmm. mother. And you live with that. I mean, even now, it, it literally brings, like, tears yeah. to my eyes because it's just, it's so fucked up. Um, the next morning, Henry was accidentally shot in the mouth by Henley with the bullet exiting through his neck. And then that night, both boys were strangled to death and buried inside the boat shed directly above the bodies of James Glass and Danny Yates, which were some of um, their first victims. So, yeah, how big is this fucking boat shed is what I want to know. And does he even have a fucking boat that he had? I don't think he does. It's like this guy's had this boat shed and he's going there pretty consistently, but never pulling a boat in and out. Because... I honestly don't think it that he does. You no, think it, we would have saw I, that somewhere? Yeah, I didn't read read, read anything. Yeah, that he yeah, had a boat. Same. So it's like very he's obviously suspicious. going in I and mean, out of it, in and out of it. And there know? are, I mean, and again, I've no, I, I've said this because it's such a long case. So we'll see again later on down the line. There were witnesses that wit that, that saw him doing shady stuff there. Oh, really? Yes, yes. Um, so. Uh, but we'll see that nothing came yeah, out exactly. of that. So, yeah, yeah, unfortunately. <sighs> um, the following month, 18-year-old Oak Forest youth named Willard Branch disappeared while hitchhiking from Mount Pleasant to Houston. His gagged and emasculated body was found buried in the boat shed. Again. On November 15th, a 19-year-old Heights youth named Richard Kempner disappeared on his uh way to a phone booth um he was actually on his way to a phone booth to call his fiance yeah yeah which which i read and like again my heart you know i know it's so sad it i we neither of us could find too much on him right no no. okay yeah um i did find um on a i believe on the on a police report after he went missing it, it mentioned that he was a carpenter um, and then it had just said, you know, that Kemper, Kempner, the same as the others, was strangled and buried, um, but this time at High Island Beach. So changing it up a little bit. Yeah. And then um, on February 1st, uh, 17-year-old Joseph Lyles, this was actually Coral's first murder of 73, no? Um, yes, yes, 73, Yep. Uh, he was acquaintance of Coral, and he also lived on the same street as Brooks. Mm-hmm. He was seen by Brooks to be grabbed by Coral at his work road address, um, and he was buried at Jefferson County Beach, which is High Island Beach. Yes, right? High, yes, yeah. High Island Beach. Yep, yep. Yeah. His remains um, were identified in November of 2009. He was also another one that I really didn't find too, too, too much, much about. Too much on, yeah. I think a lot of them, um, well, we know definitely for sure, a lot of these guys, it was... They definitely did the same things to, to each, each of them, them yes. you know what I mean? So uh, there's not full details about every single one. Um, I'm sure we could definitely get further into that. 
Um, but yeah, this is just like a little short, yeah. you know, cause they, cause we want to mention each victim, each victim. Exactly. Yeah. So altogether, at least 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 and 19 were murdered between February and November in November, 1972. Five were buried at high Island beach and five inside the boat shed on February or I'm sorry, um, on March 7th, Coral vacated this house on Schuller Street. So he's now getting ready to move again. Um, it, you know, he kills a few in each place and then he moves. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, his the next residence that he was going to be moving to was 2020 Lamar Drive. And his dad actually previously lived in this house and, was, and also vacated it. Um, so now... Coral is moving in there. Um, So now we're at 2020 Lamar Drive. There actually were no known victims killed um, from February 1st up through June 4th, 1973. I'm not sure how true this was. I did see it in two different articles. Um, It had said that Coral was known to have hydrocele in early 1973, which could contribute to his inactivity. Um, while I'm doing this, actually, break, look that up, Hydro Seal, because I wanted to do that and I forgot to. So I'll continue on while she's looking it up. Um, if I remember correctly, it had something to do with his, um, you know, genitals, I believe, which made it the reason why he was inactive. But you let me know when you find it. Um, and then after the Lyles murder, Henley decided to temporarily move away to Mount Pleasant in hopes to try and distance himself from Coral. So that was an also um, reason they thought maybe there was less killings during that time. One of his accomplices had left. Did you find it? Yeah. Okay. A hydrocele is a type of swelling in the scrotum that occurs when fluid collects in the thin sheath surrounding a testicle. Okay. So yeah, that would make sense then. Um and so we'll just go with that, you know. <laughs> but um, then from June, uh, after um, after Henley moved away, came back. It was June. Coral's rate of killings increased dramatically. It said so. Now he's got his accomplice back, and he's. It's like almost like he feels like he has, he to, has make to make up, up yeah. for that time missed, the time that he was out, you know. So later, Brooks and Henley both testified to the increased levels of brutality of the murders committed while Coral lived at Lamar Drive. Henley compared the increase in brutality exhibited by Coral towards his victims to being like a like bloodlust, you know, wow. like he like craving it. He needed it. You know, that's frightening. Um, they would now, uh, or they would, um, they would know when Coral was ready to find a new boy because he he started acting differently. It, it which is, I mean, it's like you, a drug. He, yeah, you think exactly. About it it like, really he, is. Like yeah. even just describing it as bloodlust, like that is like a craving, you know. But how they knew he was ready is because he started to get really restless. He would be smoking cigarettes like crazy. Um, he'd be making reflex movements. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, he's waiting, I'm sure, but they, they say this about, you know, which about, um, murderers and stuff is like that. 
it's like it controls you. You do crave that, oh, especially sure. after like the first time. At first, you might be a little afraid after first committing your crime, after doing whatever you did with the body. But that fearness quickly goes away and it does turn into this lust of doing yeah, it, like you know, which is like the search. This is the search that they do. It's all a part of this. I don't want to say this game that they play, but of this story that they yeah. live out. You know what I mean? There's it's like sections of their life like they like the search of for the victim the coming back and smoking marijuana and drinking the alcohol and then tricking them, you know, mm-hmm. it's like they follow a pattern, a pattern, you know, so which most killers do, which exactly they definitely do. Um, on June 4th, Henley and Coral abducted 15 year old William Ray Lawrence. He was last seen alive by his father on 31st street. After three days of abuse and torture, he was strangled before being buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. Less than two weeks later, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn was abducted, strangled, and buried also at Lake Sam Rayburn. He was um, he was married and from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, right? Uh, yes. And then he was strangled by Coral by his, at his Blue Mar Drive residence, like you said, that's yep. where he was living. Yep. Um, July 7th. Homer Garcia is 15 years old. Henley and he, they meet at a Bel Air driving school, which I don't know if that's a place in Texas yeah, or coaches, the name of the school. Yeah, or what. Coach's Driving School is, uh, was the name of it in Bel Air. Okay, yeah. so they were both enrolled there. Um, he was shot in the head and the chest and left to bleed out in Coral's bathtub. Yep. And they buried him at Lake Race, Ray Sandburn. Yeah. He actually told, he called his mother and told her that um, he was going to go and spend the night at a friend's house, which was with Henley. And then Henley obviously took him back to Coral's house and, and they murdered him. So, uh, 17-year-old John Sellers went missing on July 12th. He was from Orange County. Uh, he was killed two days before his 18th birthday, shot in the chest, and buried at High Island. Uh, he was the only victim to be buried fully clothed, yeah. which is strange. Yeah. Um, and then at Henley's trial, which later on we'll go into that, um, in 74, the Harris County Medical Examiner raised questions as to whether or not John Sellers was actually a victim of quarrels. Yeah. Um, I guess he was killed by four shots to the chest by a rifle where all of the other victims were either strangled or shot with Coral's twenty two. Yeah, so it was a very different... And then on top, like you said, he was also buried with his clothes on where his victims were yeah, always stripped naked. Exactly. So... Um, and his car had been found burned out in uh, in in Starks one yeah. week after his disappearance. It's just so weird because he was found, his body was found at High Island Beach, which is where there's yeah. other bodies found that are Coral's victims. So... Whether he did it or not, I'm assuming that's why they are linking him to these, you know, other victims. Um, Yeah. I mean, they said police were actually led um, to the area of the body, I read, by a trucker who remembered talking to a youth that he thought was Henley um, after after he saw a car stuck in the sand, like, close to where the body was found. Oh, okay. And um, the Henley apparently... I forget how I'm trying to say this, but, like, the guy he thought was Henley, he, um, he refused, saying he had two friends coming to help him. Yeah. And, He um, refused this man's help. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
And um, to this day, neither Brooks nor Henley have ever confirmed or denied that Sellers was a victim. Yeah, that's really strange, though. That's, like, puts Henley there, yeah. you know? So, I mean, just because one is killed a different way does not mean that they no, didn't no. do it, you know? And he was the same age as, like, Coral's yes, victims. Yeah, yeah. And he was bound hand and foot, too. Yeah, yeah. So, so still some similar similarities, and then there's some not, so. Yeah. Um, in July 1973, Brooks married his pregnant fiance, um, and Henley became Coral's sole procurer of victims. He assisted in abducting and murdering three Heights youths between July 19th and July 25th. Henley claimed that um, these were the only three victims that Brooks had no part in abducting. One of the three victims was 15-year-old Michael Balch, and he was the brother of a victim that we talked about in part one of um, Billy Balch. He was last seen by his family on July 19th on his way to get a haircut. Such another innocent thing, you know? You're going to do something that you've done your whole entire life, basically, you know? And you just have to run into, unfortunately, run into these people. And I, I can't imagine not only losing one of my sons oh, I know. to, to the killer, same people. but to two, but two of them. How does that even happen, too? That's just so... It's because they knew who they were. Yeah. So it's like, it's even though they might have not have been like, let's go find Billy, they saw him and he was, I yeah. guess, an easy target for them because he had already done it to their to his brother. Yeah, you took... Both of these kids away from their parents. You're a monster. Monsters. (laughs) Um, He was abducted, strangled, and buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. So, you know, again, um, same as all the other victims. Abducted, strangled, and then buried, you know? It's just, it's fucked up. It is. I don't even know what else to say about it. On July 25th, um, Marty Jones, he was 18 years old, and he was last seen with his friend and flatmate, Charles Carey Cobbler, walking along 27th Street with Henley. Um, again, there's only limited information about these two. They, I, Charles Cobble was a friend of Henley's. He was 17. Um, he had a pregnant wife at the time, which is crazy. He was 17. 17, yeah, yeah. Um, Cobble actually phoned his father in a panicked, crazed state, saying that he and Jones had been kidnapped by drug dealers. Shit, yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously his father just had no idea what was going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they were shot in the head and buried in a boat, in the, buried in the boat uh, shed. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, when you're in that kind of panic and you only think that you might have you don't even know one second, there, maybe. two seconds, yeah, to be able to get something out. Yeah. It's it's hard to, I'm sure, explain what's going on. Your um, panic, adrenaline yeah. is just flowing through your body, Yeah. On August 3rd, 1973, Coral killed his last victim, a 13-year-old boy from South Houston named James Stanton Drymilla. He was abducted by Brooks and Coral while riding his bike in Pasadena, and he was driven to the Lamar Drive home. They told him they were going to collect glass empty bottles to resell them, which is how they lured him there. Um, okay. Yeah, they're, he, they told him, you know, let's go and find these glass jars. We can clean them out and turn them in for money, yeah. you know, and he was probably like, hell yeah, let's do that. You know, he's only 13 years old. Once again, if somebody told me, let's go collect old time <laughs> glass jars 
I'd be totally down. I would (laughs) totally be down to do it. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So I get it. Um, they took him back to Coral's home and, uh, James was tied to Coral's torture board, raped, tortured, and strangled Mm. with a cord before being buried in the boat shed. Brooks later described James as a blonde boy from who he had um, ordered and bought a pizza from. And he actually stayed and talked to uh, James for 45 minutes before they attacked him. Wow. So he basically got to know him. Yeah, how do you do that? And like, then decided to attack him. 13, 13 years old, old little too. boy. What, could, what did that 13-year-old say to you that in your head made you say... I'm going to attack him now. I, I think he, it's just, I think it, he just, it was just it's a, a sick thing it's for a him sickness. that he's standing here getting to know this boy yes. when he already knows what he's going to yeah, do. Like you he know? already knows that he's going to kidnap him, abduct him, you know? So the evening of August 7th, 1973, Henley, which was, which was 17 at the time, invited 19 year old Timothy Cordell Curley to a party at Coral's Pasadena residence. He was an acquaintance of Quarles and was in, um, intended to be his next victim, actually. Um, Brooks wasn't there for this one either. Henley, <clears throat> excuse me, Henley and uh, Timothy arrived at Quarles' house where they sniffed paint fumes and drank alcohol until midnight. And then 70s, they, man. yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, sniffing like glue and stuff. Ugh. I that definitely was like I'm in the 80s was born in the yeah. 80s and just like markers I remember <laughs> in school getting like the grape marker the watermelon marker or whatever and no we did not get high from them but we definitely were sniffing them bet you people were doing whippets I'm sure uh, oh we I've ex- did experience with whip whippets once I think it was on like my maybe I was young Things I did, like, experimented with, <clears throat> I was young, so I guess, thankfully, it happened when I was young. Yeah. I think it was, like, my 16th birthday, one of my girlfriends were like, let's get whippets. <laughs> and I was like, okay. I don't remember what happened really? after that, though. Well, obviously, no. it wasn't very good. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I, well, no, I don't think it was bad, either. I just think, on top of it being 15 yeah, years so ago, long longer ago. than that, yeah, I just don't remember. But... Yes, the 70s, man. <laughs> um, so, yes, they were sniffing paint fumes. Um, I'm sure they were drinking and smoking marijuana, just like all of the other ones did. Um, oh, actually, they were. They left. They were drinking until about midnight. Uh, sorry about that. I lost track here. Um, so, after that, the, the trio... Um, I'm sorry... Not Coral. Henley and Timothy left the house to go and get food. Sorry about that. And then um, the two of them drove back to Houston Heights. And then when Henley exited the vehicle, they parked in Houston Heights. I think it said it was like down the street from either Henley's house or or Timothy's house. But either way, when Henley um, exited the vehicle, he heard commotion from across the street and um, the house, it was belonged to 15-year-old friend Rhonda Louise Williams and her dad. And he was actually beating the shit out of her. He was, I guess, really, really drunk. And it was so bad and so loud that he heard it down the, sh- like, down the street a little bit across the street. Wow. 
at after midnight. Yeah. So really bad, you know. Um, and Henley knew her, so he basically went to her rescue. You know, oh, yeah. the one good thing, the that one good thing he's life. ever done. It wasn't yeah. even good because he knew where he was taking her. Exactly. Um, he Sorry. was taking her there. Yeah. Little I mean, rant. it wasn't in hopes to kill her, but he yeah just to get her out of her father's house. He was gonna take her back to yeah, Coral's, which Coral's obviously house. was not any better. Um, and she did. She ended up leaving that night with Timothy and Henley. At around 3 a.m. on the morning of August 8th, 1973, they all returned to Coral's house. Coral was furious that Henley brought a girl back to the house, telling him in private that he had ruined everything. Because he doesn't do, like, we've seen, he doesn't yeah. do anything with girls. I mean, he, he is... First of all, he is definitely a homosexual, which is fine. But so he doesn't do anything with girls in that sense. But he's never even murdered a female. You know, it's always been boys. And he was planning on murdering Timothy. So he's very pissed that now there is this other person who's going to be in his way, basically. You know, so um, Coral calmed down and offered the trio beer and marijuana And after about two hours, Henley, Curly, and Williams each passed out. Henley ended up awaking and finding himself lying on his stomach, and Coral was putting handcuffs onto his wrist. So that's how he woke up, was Coral was literally on his back handcuffing him. You know, this guy that he's been helping abduct, torture, rape, kill, is now holding him down and um putting him in handcuffs you know so his mouth was taped shut and his ankles were bound together curly and williams were laying next to him next to henley they both were securely bound with nylon roped gagged with adhesive tape and laying face down on the floor curly was stripped naked um and um noticing coral was noticing that henley was waking up so coral removed his gag henry 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 (laughs) henley pleaded for coral to stop but coral let him know again how upset he was for bringing a girl to the house like why don't bring girls here i know he really is i could just see him like you brought that girl here. You're fucked now, you know? Like, um, maybe no just don't murder. Allowed. Yeah, maybe just don't murder people, and then you could hang out with girls <laughs> and guys. How about that? So Coral told him he was going to kill all three of them. After he assaulted and tortured Curly, um, he, he screamed um, at Henley, Man, you blew it bringing that girl here. I'm going to kill you all, but first I'm going to have my fun. Supposedly that was a direct quote from him that Henley said. Yeah. So, sick fuck. Um, he then repeatedly kicked Williams in the chest before lifting Henley to his feet. He dragged him into the kitchen and placed that, that twenty two caliber pistol against his stomach, threatening to shoot him. Henley was actually able to calm Coral down by telling him that he wanted to participate in the torture of Curly and uh, Williams and in the murder as well. So Coral agreed, you know, he, I don't even know, I feel like almost that's what he was waiting for, kind of. Is to, I, I do, I kind of feel, because he could have killed him already oh, yeah. by now, you know what I mean? He's obviously 
putting a gun up to him. He's making him think that he's going to kill him, but then he just releases him because he offers to help him. So I do think that that's what he was wanting was Henley just to be like, I don't care about these people. I want to kill them yeah. too. And then Cora was like, okay, you, you're still on my side then basically, you know? Um, so Coral, um, you know, agreed. He untied Henley. He then carried Curly and Williams to the bedroom and tied them to opposite sides of the torture board. Curly was on his stomach. Williams was on her back. Coral gave Henley a hunting knife and ordered him to cut Williams' clothes off. And um, he said he, he was going to rape um, Curly. Curl, Coral was going to rape Curly. And he wanted Henley to do the same to Williams. Which is so, they're in the same room yeah. together. It's like a participation. Yeah, like he wants to watch Henley do this to this girl that he fucked up and brought there, you yeah. know? So um, Henley did what Coral asked. He started to cut William's clothes off. Um, and as he's doing that, Coral started to sexually assault Curly. Um, both of them had now awakened at this point. They're being tossed around, tied up onto this torture board. Um, so they're, they're both starting to come to and realize what is going on with them. Actually, I'm sure there was nothing but confusion yeah, yeah. there. But because they fall asleep comfortably, you know, <laughs> oh, this God. girl, this poor girl had just been really beaten by her father she probably thinks thankfully i have a safe yeah bed to, to sleep be. tonight you know and and this is what she wakes up to um reports say that curly began writhing and shouting and williams whose gag was now removed lifted her head and asked henley is this for real henley's response was yes williams then asked henley are you going to do anything about it Henley asked Coral if he could take Williams into another room, and Coral just ignored this request from him. So Henley then grabbed the pistol, that twenty-two caliber pistol that was sitting there. He started shouting, You've gone far enough, Dean. Henley told him, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all of my friends. You should have thought about that was... ten fucking friends ago, yeah, bud. Like, reading this, I'm like, what? happened this time that it was different yeah like, why is this the time like was it the girl was it that he was fed up and pissed that henley or that coral tied him yeah, up you like know? you're only 17 years old how many more friends do you have yeah, right? you know what i mean like he's already killed all of them these these are like your last two i don't know if it had something to maybe do with i don't think that henley or brooks are gay i don't think no, that either of them so are either. homosexuals so i don't know if it maybe had something to do with like um Williams being a girl and him feeling more bad about I mean, it she basically I, just asked him like what are you going to do about this and he was like okay I'm finally going to do something yeah you know? I mean it's weird it is weird because what what did it take this time yeah like exactly what you said why this time and you don't kill all of my friends you <laughs> have bur You've buried all of your friends you know so um, Coral approached Henley saying, kill me, Wayne, telling him you won't do it. So he's antagonizing him. Uh, Henley then fired at Coral, hitting him in the forehead, which when I read that, I like giggled out loud. I'm like <laughs> hitting him in the forehead. Cause I can just, 
in my head, I pictured it like ricocheting off of his forehead. (laughs) I don't know. It just didn't seem believable to me. But yeah, so he hit him in the forehead. The bullet failed to fully penetrate Coral's skull and he moved again towards Henley. So he was still alive. Um, Henley then fired another two rounds, hitting Coral in the left shoulder. Coral then ran from the room. Um, He was falling into the walls, of course, in the hallway. And then Henley came up from behind him and fired three, three more shots into Coral's lower back and shoulder. Coral then slid down the wall um, of the hallway, and he was actually outside of the room where the two teenagers were still bound, you know, to this torture board. So it's kind of, like, ironic a little bit. Yeah. You know, these last two, well, basically three, but two victims that you were going to have, they just watched you take your last breath Yeah, You know what I mean? So, um, uh, yeah, it, it, it really is. Henley would later say that Coral would have been proud of the way he had, he had behaved during the confrontation, saying that he had trained him to react quickly and forcefully, and that was exactly what he had done. He, yeah, exactly. Like, um, congrats. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Henley released Curly and Williams from the torture board, and all three teenagers got up. They all got dressed, um, and they sat and discussed you know what they should do next um Henley of course suggested that they should just all (laughs) let's just all go our separate ways you know but no Curly he was not going to do that he wanted to call the police Henley did agree and um ended up calling the Pasadena Police Department um, at 8.24, like she said, 8.24 in the morning on August 8, 1973, Henley, Henley calls Pasadena Police. Um, an operator named Velma Lines yep. answered the call. Uh, he said, y'all better come here right now. I just killed a man. While waiting for police, uh, Henley mentioned to Curly that he had, quote, done that, meaning killed by shooting four or five times before. Mm-hmm. Um, so cops arrived within minutes, naturally. Well. Hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully, not, not naturally. naturally. Yeah. I take that back. Thankfully, <laughs> yes, they thankfully. Did. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jess. <laughs> the three teens, um, the three of them were sitting on the porch, and the twenty two uh, caliber pistol was in the driveway. So, as police entered the home, uh, they discovered the body inside. Um, while this kind of goes a little forward, but while being read his Miranda rights, because, I mean, they were doing all that at the same time, yeah. Henley shouted, I don't care who knows about it, I have to get it off my chest. Um, Curly later told detectives that as they were waiting for police to arrive, that Henley said, I could have gotten $200 for you. Yeah. Like, yeah. How like he's insulting like, like is bragging that? Or some... like, can you imagine being like, I, you know, I could have gotten $200 for I you. know. It's like literally almost like demeaning his life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like $200. So and why even say that? Because you yeah, could. you just why you, you just said, you, you're right. You could have gotten $200 for him um but like so, but you didn't on your own know. reasons for yeah. your own reasons so and why even know that, tell him that like i would take that as well i'm glad that's what you think my life is worth exactly you know? exactly like, it's just, i just don't understand why I even say it to him whenever you're yeah. you're not getting the 200 coral's dead that it's little irrelevant. fucked up game that you guys played is over now so yes why yeah. even say it so, initially, police be- believed that they were only, like, responding and arresting Henley for shooting Coral, 
and um, they believed his claim because he was claiming self-defense, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but as Henley began to recount what happened to Dean, he also confessed to them what Dean, David, and himself had been doing for the past three years. Yeah. Um, police were really skeptical of his story. Like, they didn't believe him. They thought it was some type of, like, drug-fueled, escalated fight, you know. Um, but Henley was super insistent, and police started to take him seriously after he started giving names of the boys, yeah. you know. Um, and after, even that night, they they didn't believe, yeah, like what had happened. But you said they even that night, yeah. But they, because the statements that were given by Curly and Williams, it you know it went with Henley's account too. Yeah. So the detectives did end up believing um, Henley when he said that it was that he did shoot Coral in self defense. Yeah. Um, Henley then explained that, like you just said, for almost three years that he and Brooks helped procure teenage boys, some who were the, um, their act their their own friends, like we all know, um, and that they would bring them to Coral's, who then would rape and murder them. Mm-hmm. Henley gave a verbal statement that he initially believed the boys um, were being abducted, like we said, um, in that white um, sex slavery ring. It was out of Dallas, is what Coral told him, um, for homosexual acts, for sodomy, um, and then to maybe be killed after that. Uh, Henley admitted he participated in several abductions and murders and that he also participated in the torture and mutilation of six to eight victims um, before they were murdered. Police, again, were very skeptical of this. Um, Henley's claims just... I mean, they went there for one shooting of self-defense and now he's admitting to seriously harming and killing children with other accomplices and they have no idea about this so i'm sure they're in complete shock since they don't have any evidence of that they have to be skeptical skeptical of it you know because there's tons of people who say they commit crimes that they don't really commit you know so they they're definitely skeptical but um you know like Brittany said, once he started recalling the names of three of the boys, um, he mentioned Cobble, Hillegeist, and Jones. The police um, then started to realize, yeah, wow, this, this these claims serious. have to be true because all three of those teenagers were listed as missing with the Houston Police Department. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, beyond that, once they went into the house... They came across a lot of things that definitely, you know... Yes, yeah, little trigger warning here. Yeah, that yeah. definitely um, kind of... Pointed gave, towards the direction yeah, yeah. that there were... That they were doing... That more happened than just yeah. what happened the night Coral got um, murdered. And um, there's definitely a trigger warning with this um, about some of the things they found in Dean's house. Yes. Um, feel free to jump in, Jess, if you have anything else that I'm not, like, finding... Um, I know originally, as soon as they walked in uh, to the room that they were held in, there was plastic sheeting covering the entire floor yep. of the room that the teens were held in. Mm-hmm. Um, upon looking around further, they found a torture board. It was a slab of basically unpainted plywood, yep. um, eight feet by two feet wide, with holes drilled into each corner to bind them. Um, multiple dildos, including an 18-inch double-sided one. Yes. It was used to torture them. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, went through his roving torture van, which was outfitted with multiple pegboards, similar to the torture board. Yep. And we all know Yeah, they, they used... found a good bit in that Econo line van. Yeah. Like nylon rope. Um, they, they are, 
I think that you were probably just getting ready to say this too. Um, they found boxes that mm-hmm. were um had holes. Yeah, like two of them. I yeah, think. two of them. There were boxes that had holes drilled into the sides of them, um, and that's what they would use to transport their victims in. Um, they found thin glass tubes. Yeah, a lot and a lot of um long lengths of rope, the nylon rope, the handcuffs. Um, and, and the van was actually still parked in the driveway. So they of course went there to search the van. A fucking total creeper van. The rear win- windows were totally sealed off by opaque blue curtains. So you couldn't even see yeah. into it. Um, the rear of the vehicle, um, they found, um, let me see. Well, Police found coil of rope, a swatch of beige rug covered in soil stains, and then the wooden crate with the air holes uh, drilled into the sides. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the peg walls inside the rear of the van were rigged with several rings and hooks so they could obviously, like Brittany said, hook their victims up, strap their victims up. And then another wooden crate with air holes drilled in the side was found in Coral's backyard. Inside the crate, they actually found several strands of hair. So... They will be getting that tested. Yeah. I know they also found a portable radio. Um, yeah, yeah. To, uh, it says a pair of dry cells. Which is, yeah. But I'm guessing that just boosts volume. It does, so they, yeah, like cells. I think it's like yeah. parts that you can put into the radio When I first read that, I was like, Me too. why is I was, that relevant? Yeah. I was like, oh, shit, like to yeah. cover up screens Yeah, to cover up noises or, yeah, just anything like that. So, and then they also, it was eight pairs of handcuffs um, that they found, yeah. And then um, they found an electric motor with mm-hmm. loose wires attached. So I don't know if they were doing maybe some type electric of electric shock to these kids. That's what I would assume because what else would you really be needing that for? Um, So Henley agreed to go with the police to the boat shed in Southwest Houston, where he said most of the victims could be found in the shed. Police found a stolen half stripped car, which we go back now to the vehicle that was it. um, Frank drove, I believe. I think so. Yeah. I believe I'm not sure. You keep reading. Yeah, I'll go, go ahead. Go ahead back just out of curiosity. But I know we said that a little earlier where we weren't sure what happened to the one boy who decided he would drive on his own yeah. um back to the house and I think that this may be that car because it says it's a stolen vehicle. It was completely stripped out. So anything on it, the parts, tires, whatever was sold off. Um they also found a child's bike which was another victim. They they um you know, abducted him while he was riding his bike. A large iron iron drum, water containers, two sacks of lime, and a large plastic bag um, that was full of teenage boys' clothing. Mm-hmm. Did you find it there? Yeah, you were right, because um, they did find John Sellers' car burned okay. a week later, yeah. but it was Frank Edward. Yeah. That's yeah. what that very well might have been, yep. you know? Yeah, I, I think it possibly could be. Uh, police started a uh, vacuum... Uh, um, ex- excavating through the soft shell crushed earth on the boat shed. Cause usually areas like that, it is very soft. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, soft dirt or whatever. Um, 
and uncovered the body of a young blonde haired teenage boy lying on his side and wrapped in clear plastic and um he had he was covered under a, a layer of lime real quick yeah <laughs> as i'm looking at my next like the next thing in my notes it says inside they found a half stripped car which was stolen from a used car mo- car lot in march oh okay so maybe not so maybe not then yeah, yeah. so they were just thieves on top of yeah, everything yeah. else yeah okay well it makes sense you know so scratch everything yeah, i didn't just see said that before either. this um <laughs> no big deal yeah so um give me the facts yeah exactly Police contributed to search and, um, or I'm sorry, police continued to search and unearthed the remains of more victims in varying stages of decomposition. I mean, some of them have been down here for a couple of years now. So most of the bodies were wrapped in thick, clear plastic sheeting. Some victims were shot and others were strangled. All of the victims found had been um, sodomized and most victims... um, uh, bore evidence of sexual torture. Just a heads up, uh, this next section is um, rough. Uh, is rough. Uh, serious trigger warnings. Um, if you've had a hard time already with any of these things, maybe if you want to skip ahead about a minute or two, because um, it's definitely rough. Um, you know, with searching these bodies, they, they come to find out um, the things that Coral and, and these two accomplices have done to them, you know, and with Henley's statements as well. Um, so it showed that um, they would pull pubic hairs, um, you know, they were plucking them out. Their genitals had been chewed on, objects had been inserted into their rectums, and glass rods had been inserted into their urethra and then smashed. Ugh. How do you even, even think, about think of doing that? To, first of all, to anybody, but to a child to put them yeah. in that kind of anguish and pain. I mean, I just wish that somebody could have done this to him oh, yeah. over and over again before Henley shot him. It's just is so sickening that it's it's hard to comprehend and even say really because it's just like when I was doing this research and I read that I immediately had to stop and like I ran downstairs and was like JR listen to what he does to his victims because so far we've only heard that he torture abducts yeah. torture rapes murders and buries them you know it hasn't really gone into detail of what he does to them and we both just couldn't believe like what I was saying honestly because it is just that brutal and that's sick. Um, I hope whatever afterlife this man has yes. is filled with getting his yeah. pubic hair yeah. pulled out one at a time. Exactly. And, and everything else. And yep. What is it? Rest in R.I.P. Rest in pieces or something like that. Instead of rest in yeah. peace, rest in pieces. You piece of shit, I think, is what <laughs> I've heard somebody else say. Or at least that's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. <laughs> Um, cloth rags were also inserted into the victim's mouths and adhesive tape wrapped around their faces to muffle their screams. 
after the um, recovery of the eighth body was completed at 11.55 p.m., the search was discontinued until the next day. Ran out of light, obviously. You need definite, you need yeah. daylight for this kind of stuff, you know. Um, Brooks came to the Houston Police Department with his father on the evening of August 8th. So, so far, it's just been Henley. Mm-hmm. You know, Brooks hasn't, you know, I. it doesn't really seem like Henley has said much about Brooks other than maybe that he's been an accomplice. So yeah. now um, Brooks has obviously found out the police are looking for him, um, and he brings himself in. His father comes with him, and he gave a statement denying any participation in the murders. But he did admit to knowing that Coral had raped and killed two youths in 1970. Fuck you. Honestly. Like, no, <laughs> you fu- Like, if you're going to admit... Like, just admit all of it. You know what I mean? Like, clearly the things that Henley is going to tell them is so outrageous and against you. Like, you're fucked. Just be an honest human for once in your fucking life and let these parents put their children to rest. On the morning of August 9th, Henley gave a full written statement detailing his and Brooks' involvement with Coral in the abduction and murder of numerous youths. In his confession, Henley admitted to killing approximately nine victims and assisted Coral in the strangulation of others. Henley stated that there were only three abductions and murders that Brooks did not assist him in, which is... I think that was, remember I said before he they moved to Lamar or La, Larmar Drive, there there was those three youths, like, back yeah. to back. And, and Brooks wasn't there because that's right after he married, married his pregnant yeah. fiancé. Yeah, so that is the truth. Um, and that was in uh, the summer of 1973. Henley went with the police. Um, he, he cooperated. He did take... And went with the police to Lake Sam Rayburn, where he, Brooks, and Coral had buried four victims killed just that year. Two more bodies were found in shallow, lime-soaked graves located near a drift road, or a dirt road, sorry. Inside the lakeside log cabin, which was owned by Coral's family, police found a second plywood torture board, more rolls of plastic sheeting, shovels, and a sack of lime. Police found nine additional bodies on August 9th in the boat shed, and the bodies were recovered between 12.05 p.m. and 8.30 p.m., and all were in advanced stages of decomposition. One of the bodies showed evidence, um, another trigger warning coming up, of sexual mutilation, um, and actually they found a plastic bag that was in the grave with this body. It was a sealed plastic bag and it had the victim's severed genitals in it. Another victim found um had several fractured ribs, which Brittany said earlier he was kicked in, he was kicking and breaking um one of the victim's ribs. The 13th and 14th bodies found had identification cards um which with named those two victims. Yep. Yep. Where? Um, this is all in, um, the, in the, at the lake. Oh, I just meant like they were buried with them. Yes. They had their identification cards actually on them. Oh, okay. And you mean like card cards, like the kind you get. Yeah. Like 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 ID cards. Yeah. Like I thought you meant like a card where like they, the coral wrote their name. No. no, Why would he do that? Yeah. They were like actual ID (laughs) cards. Yeah. And those two victims were Donald and Jerry Waldrop. So the two brothers, um, 
Brooks gave a full confession on August 9th, admitting to being present at several killings and assisting in several burials. Like, and several abductions, <laughs> you know, and taking money for abductions and taking uh, bribes, vehicles. Yeah, witnessing rapes. Yeah, exactly. Much more than just that. He continued to uh, still deny mm. any participation in the actual murders. He talked to police about Coral's torture board and told them once they were on the board, they were as good as dead. It was all over, but the shouting and crying. He agreed to accompany police to High Island Beach to assist in the search for more bo- more bodies of the victims. On August 10th, 1973, Henley again, again accompanied police to Lake uh, Sam Rayburn. See, they have so many victims in each of these places yeah. that it can't just be done in one day. Okay, they have to no. continually go back, you know. They found two more bodies buried just uh, 10 feet apart. Just like the bodies found um, on the previous day, these victims had been tortured and severely beaten um, particularly around the head, it said. That afternoon, Henley and Brooks went with police to High Island Beach, leading police to the shallow graves of two more victims. How do you remember this, too? I mean, I know that there's been some, like, you know, like maybe a map drawn out. I think we, I, I think somebody, there? well, I know in the John Wayne Gacy case, somebody drew out a map of his crawl space and where each body was. I don't know. Yeah. I can't remember if it actually was Gacy or somebody else was. who was down there. But I just, how do you remember where you put yeah. this many bodies? Um, you know, it's just crazy. Uh, on August 13th, they um, all of them, the police, Brooks, Henley, went back to High Island Beach where four more bodies were found, making a total of 27 known victims. It was the worst killing spree in American history at the time. Henley insisted that there were two more bodies buried at the boat shed and two more at High Island Beach in 1972. At the time, the killing spree was the worst uh, case of serial murder because of the number of victims um, in the United States. Before Coral, there was a serial killer named Juan Corona. He was arrested in California in 1971 for killing 25 men. So before Coral, he had the most. And then... John Wayne Gacy. Um, He then murdered 33 boys and young men in 1978 um, and admitted to being influenced by press coverage of the Houston mass murders. So, I mean, we knew that he had to have been. There were just too many similarities between the two. Um, So, just a random fun fact. Yeah. Um, I didn't know the term serial killer wasn't even coined back then, actually. I don't know when it came out, but it was after 1973. Yeah. They did not have the word serial killer. For some reason, I feel like that word has just no, always because, existed. No, yeah, <laughs> like, because um, we that we watch, I'm trying to think of what the show is on Netflix, A Mindhunter. Yeah, and I it's <laughs> And it's, you know, back, I'm assuming 60s, 70s, it has to be um, because of the sum of the cases that they cover yeah and in that i think in the second season um because since it is such a realistic they cover actual murders um they talk about one of them says a serial killer and that's 
at least in the show, yeah, how yeah. it kind of all huh. comes together. Yeah, because they were trying to figure out, what do we even call yeah. somebody who has killed this many? I think it was about maybe either Edmund Kemp, um, Kemp, Kempner, Kemper. yeah, or uh, I can't remember, you know. But anyway, that's a good show. So if you haven't watched <laughs> that, go check it out. Um. So, yeah, so John Wayne Case, Gacy was the next one. He had the most after Coral. Um, the missing boys um, actually were all considered to be runaways. Uh, families of the victims blamed Houston police departments because they were, ca- you know, their sons, their kids, not their sons. Too much sons of anarchy in this house right now. Sorry. <laughs> But their their boys, their kids, were disappearing. So, of course, they're reporting it to the police. Unfortunately, you know, um, a low-income mm. neighborhood, uh, um, African-American children, it's sad. I, it should not be that way. It's so fucked up. But that is just... How it goes, yeah. Sadly, you see it, today, still it does. We're in 2021, and we still see this shit today. Mm-hmm. With you hear so much coverage on this child, but you know nothing about this child, yeah. or even just telling these parents that their 17 year old kid, or even 18 year old kid. But I'm saying, as an adult, if they're considered an adult, and they call it in. Are you sure they didn't run away? They just automatically assume, no matter what, from the get-go, yeah. that it's a runaway. And these parents know their kids. Yeah. Because I'm sure that there are parents who call in who are who say, it very well could have been a runaway. We don't get along with each other. Yeah. She's run away before. But if you're hearing from a parent that their 14-year-old kid literally has never left um, Houston. Has like 80 cents in their pocket. Exactly. Yeah. We'll get, yeah, that, that comes up. You know what I mean? Then maybe you should take it fucking seriously. Um, so, but the families felt like their kids were not considered worthy of an investigation. Uh, the police should have, uh, noticed and noted an insidious trend in the pattern of disappearances of teenage boys from the Heights neighborhood. I mean, it was happening so often. Other families complained that the Houston Police Department were um, was very dismissive when they said their their sons had no reason to run away from home. Everett Waldrop, he was the father of the two brothers, Donald and um, Jerry, said that after his sons disappeared in 1971, he informed the police that an acquaintance. This is where this is where it's coming up now. One of his acquaintances saw Coral burying what appeared to be bodies at his boat shed. So somebody, I'm sure more, if he witnessed it, I'm sure that there's other people too, saw this this dude doing some shady shit. You know what I mean? Like, what? why do you need to be digging yeah, up your, your boat shed? shed? You know? So, and um, Everett Waldrop told the police this. So, once again, we continually see this all the time, too. The police went to the boat shed. They did a half-ass investigation, you know, around the perimeter. 
Didn't I see anything. So yep, yep. Did not see anything, so they left. It's like going, somebody reporting, I just heard somebody scream, yeah. help me, next door, knocking on their door, giving it two seconds, nobody <laughs> answers, and saying, nobody's even in that house. All right, guys, pack it up. Yeah, like, we did our job here. Like, no, you are a police yeah. officer. Like, you did not do your job, you know? So, um... Waldrop said when he would visit the police department that the police chief would tell him, why are you down here? You know your boys are runaways. <laughs> like, obviously I don't know that. That's why I'm here. The mother of Gregory Malley Winkle stated um, that you don't run away with nothing but a bathing suit and 80 cents. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like... Might have not even had shoes on, you know, like, because they're swimming. They're at, like, swimming pools and just in the neighborhood hanging out. So, um, let me see here. By May 1974, 21 of Coral's victims were identified. All but four of the youths lived in or had um, close connection to Houston Heights. Two more teenagers were identified in 1983 and in 1985. One was Richard Kempner, who also lived in Houston Heights, and the other was uh, Willard Branch, and he lived in Oak Forest District of Houston, so not far from Houston Heights. Um, On August 13th, a grand jury convened in um, Hams County to hear evidence against Henley and Brooks. Uh, they called some for, uh, some witnesses to the stand. The first witness to testify was Williams and Curley. Another witness to testify against Coral was Billy Rigner, the one that he ended up, that Henley, or was it oh, Brooks, yeah. was convinced him <clears throat> to uh, let him go, and, and Coral did let him leave. After listening to over six hours of testimony from uh, various people, on August 14th, the jury initially indicted Henley on three counts of murder and Brooks on one count, which <laughs> which thankfully it said initially yeah. because I was about to be like, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, bail for each boy was set at $100,000. The district attorney wanted Henley to undergo a psychiatric examination to determine whether he was mentally um, competent to stand trial. But his attorney, Charles Melder, said that the move would um wouldn't be good for Henley or would it would violate Henley's uh constitutional rights, which kind of surprised me a little bit because you think that he would maybe want him to plead insanity. Yeah. And almost I mean so many like trials like this they always do mental evaluations nowadays like, yeah yeah definitely like the 70s. yeah maybe because it was you know in the 70s but there's so many times where i've heard you know to maybe plead and try to plead or get insanity over yeah. um a death penalty of course you know what i mean but his attorney did not think it was a good idea so hmm. he did not get that evaluation um, when the grand jury uh, completed its investigation, Henley had been indicted for six murders and Brooks for four. Eh, um, yeah. you know, not, you know, maybe a little better, but not really. No. They should be indicted for all of the murders. I, I get it. For every boy you know, they brought there. Yes, because every single person that they abducted, even if they didn't personally shoot strangle which they definitely did strangle some of them and shot at least one of them 
even if they didn't murder all of them, they were taking them to be murdered. Yeah, exactly. They, so they you should be happen. charged for all of them. At least that's how I think it should be. Um, obviously, we all know that the system is broken. Yeah. Um, so... Henley was not charged with the death of Coral because prosecutors ruled on September 18th that it had been committed in self-defense, which, okay. Yeah, yeah I mean, okay. The, somebody had to Fuck fucking him. kill he him. He should have died. Yeah, yeah exactly. He was, he was time anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so let's get into the trials and convictions. Uh, we're going to go through Henley's first. So Elmer Wayne Henley um, and David Owen Brooks were tried separately for their roles in the murders. Henley was brought to trial in San Antonio on July 1st, 1974. He was charged with six murders um, committed between March 1972 and July 1973. The prosecution called dozens of witnesses. Other incriminating testimony came from police officers who read from Henley's written statements. In part of his confession, Henley described his... um, his luring of two victims uh, for whose murder he was brought to trial. Their names were, um, they were Cobble and Jones. He brought them to Coral's Pasadena house. Henley confessed that after they, uh, their initial abuse of the two and tortured them, Cobble and Jones each had one wrist and ankle bound to the same side of Coral's torture board. The teens were then forced to fight each other with the promise that whoever beat the other one to death would be allowed to live. That's it's like putting two, like, it. that's like, no matter, whether it be humans, animals, it does not matter. This is life or death, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's just psychological you think torture. They, exactly. Not, so even if they would have actually let one of them live, you not only just made him murder yeah. somebody else now, now he has to live with that or get in trouble for that or whatever. You've just ruined one of their lives. Yeah. Both of their lives. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Both of their lives. It's just so fucked up. Um, after hours of the two teens beating on each other, Jones was tied back to the board and uh, forced to watch as Cobble got assaulted, tortured, and shot to death before he himself was raped, tortured, and strangled with a Venetian blind cord. The two youths were killed on July 27, 1973, two days after they were reported missing. So they, they ca- it didn't doesn't really seem like it because of going from one victim to the next. It seems so fast, but they would keep these victims for days mm-hmm. in between and then bury one and then go find another one. So they didn't just torture them for an hour, for two hours, you know, for days they would torture them before they would actually murder them. Uh, several parents of the victims actually had to leave the courtroom to regain their composure as police and medical examiners described oh, sure. how their loved ones were tortured and murdered. I couldn't even I couldn't imagine. Right. I, I don't know if I could or not. I mean, on one hand, you probably feel like you, ha- you, you have to, to you yeah. need to. But then on the other hand, it's like now you really know, you know, you've already mm. lived with just... You know, I guess when you live with not knowing for so long yeah. and now you have a chance to finally know as a parent, you probably would want to. Yeah. 
Um, Throughout the trial, the state introduced 82 pieces of evidence, including Coral's torture board and one of the boxes used to transport the victims. The hair that was found in the box was actually concluded by examiners to belong to Cobble and to Henley. Oh, really? So I don't know if Henley was, he himself was in the box or just by maybe, maybe a victim even pulled his hair or something um, and it fell into the box, but... Upon advice from his defense counsel, Henley did not take the stand to testify. His attorney, Will Gray, cross-examined several witnesses, but did not call any witnesses or experts for the defense. I guess, how could you really? Yeah. I mean, he admitted to doing these things. Who's going to stand up there and defend his honor? You know, I, even if his family, I'm sure, or I wouldn't, you know, if I was a family member or, or a friend. On July 15th, 1974, both counsels presented their closing arguments to the jury. The prosecution seeking life imprisonment and the defense a verdict of not guilty. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's a defense attorney. Like, are you? I know that is there to do seen, your job, like, but how? How can somebody even plead not guilty whenever they've admitted to the crimes? I know. It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. And you run such a risk doing that. You know what I mean? Just plead guilty. Tell the truth. You know? Um, In his closing argument to the jury, District Attorney uh, Carol uh, Vance apologized for not being able to seek the death penalty, adding that the case was the most extreme example of man's inhumanity to man I have ever seen. The jury deliberated for 92 minutes before finding Henley guilty for all six murders for which he was tried. July uh, 16th were the formal procedures to to sentencing Henley for the six guilty verdicts. And on August 8th, Judge Preston Dial ordered that Henley serve each 99-year sentence consecutively. Um, which totaled 594 years. And he was transferred to the Huntsville unit to begin his sentence. Like, fuck you. Yeah. Um, Henley appealed his sentence and conviction, saying the jury, um, on like during his initial trial, had not been, um, they didn't allow his attorney's objections to have the news media present in the courtroom. That was all overruled and citing that his, um, his defense team's attempts to present evidence contending that the uh, initial trial should not have been held in San Antonio had also been overruled by the judge. So he's appealing saying, you know, all these things that we tried to do, my attorneys tried to do, kept on getting overruled, you know? So, they didn't want it to be held in San Antonio? No, they didn't. Why? It doesn't say. Well, they but already, they moved it from their hometown to San Antonio. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's what he's using okay. for his appeal. So, I, I don't know. Obviously, his attorneys know, yeah. you know? Um, but in his, Henley's appeal was upheld, and he was um, rewarded a retrial in December 1978. So Henley's retrial began on June 18, 1979. The second trial was held at Corpus Christi. Henley was again represented by defense attorneys Will Gray and Ed uh, Peglaw. Peglaw. Not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Um, Henley's attorneys tried to have Henley's written statements ruled um, in a... indemissible, which they tried that in the first, in the initial trial as well. 
but Judge Noah Kennedy ruled the written statements as admissible evidence, not inadmissible, but as admissible, meaning they could use them in the trial, where his attorneys didn't want to let them use those written statements. Um, the, uh, the retrial lasted nine days and, uh, Henley's attorneys again did not call any defense witnesses and again attacked the credibility of Henley's written confession. The defense also contended that, that the evidence <clears throat> provided by the state belonged to Dean Coral, not Henley. On June 27, 1979, the jury deliberated for over two hours before reaching their new verdict. Henley again was convicted of six murders and sentenced to six concurrent 99-year terms. So, same exact conviction. They're like, no, fuck you, dude. Yeah. We know you did this shit. Like, you, you literally gave a written statement, which I feel like would be more convincing than a verbal statement you know what i mean yeah, like you I don't have to actually use that sit in, and, in court though yeah well they did they did use they it used in court whole written statement yeah court. yeah that's what his that's why they got a retrial because they were trying to dismiss using things like that uh -huh. so they gave him a retrial but the ju the new judge wouldn't they allowed the written statements okay. um okay so let's move on to brooks David Owen Brooks was brought to trial on February 27, 1975. He had been indicted for four murders committed between December 1970 and June 1973, but was brought to trial um, charged only with the June 1973 murder of 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence. Because remember, initially he was only charged with that one murder in the initial trial. Brooks' defense attorney, Jim Skelton, which I kept on wanting to say, read Jim Skeleton. And when I first <laughs> saw it, I thought it said Jim Skeleton. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah. yeah what a right. cool name. But no, it's Skelton. Um, argued that his client had not committed any murders and attempted to portray Coral to a lesser degree. Henley as uh, being the active participants in the actual killings. Yeah. What? Like... So what are they saying that I I take that as them saying listen he, Brooks only did this. Yeah. Of course. Coral's yeah. the main guy. He did all of this. Okay. So that's I wasn't sure how to take that, but okay. Assistant D uh, District Attorney Tommy Dunn dismissed the defense's contention outright at one point telling the jury this defendant was in on this killing, this murderous rampage from the very beginning. He tells you he was a cheerleader if nothing else. That's what he was telling you about his presence. You know he was in on it. Brooks' trial lasted less than one week, and the jury deliberated for just 90 minutes before they reached a verdict. He was found guilty of Lawrence's murder on March 4, 1975, and sentenced to life imprisonment. Brooks showed no emotion when he was sentenced. Like, it, I read somewhere that his wife yeah. burst into tears. She was very sure. emotional <laughs> on one. I mean, <clears throat> I try to think if, of that, you know, and... I don't even think I would have gone, honestly. No? No, I don't. I, I think I would have not been standing behind him at all. I think I would have gone, but I'm mm. not standing behind him. Yeah, yeah. But um, supposedly she got very upset. She, um, you know, bust into tears crying. Yeah. But Brooks is a coward and did not give a shit um, 
when he, when they read him his sentence. Brooks also appealed his sentence, um, contending that the signed confessions used against him were taken without him being um, informed of his legal rights. His appeal was his appeal was dismissed dismissed in May 1979. Henley is serving his life sentence at the Mark W. Michael Unit in Anderson County, Texas. Um, he's put in lots of parole applications but they've all been to not denied but he's actually eligible eligible I can't talk now I'm so sorry. <laughs> sorry you're almost done I'm almost there um he is actually eligible for parole again in October 2025 which is crazy yeah, so soon yeah um Brooks served his life sentence at the Terrell unit near uh Rocheron Texas he actually died of COVID-19 related complications at a Galveston hospital on May 28th, 2020 at the age of 65. Bye motherfucker. See ya later. <laughs> yeah, like so that is we have a little bit more information that we want to tell you. There was some new um, you know, forensic information mm-hmm. that came out um or no. I mean, am I wrong on that? Not really. Yeah, there's not really in forensic. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Never mind. Because Brittany's going to be doing this all last part. Um, but before then, we are going to read off every victim um, who was unfortunately murdered by Coral, Dean Coral, um, Brooks, and Henley. David Owen Brooks, I keep on... Elmer Wayne Henley. Elmer Wayne Henley. Um, You know, we just want to show honor to their lives, to their families. And we always want to let, you know, you know that it's not about these monsters who kill these children. It's about the victims, you know. Um, You know, and helping people realize, you know, you just to be cautious, to stay safe, you know. Um, so that's what we're going to do. And the media actually, uh, when they were covering these stories of these runaway children, um, that's what everybody assumed it was. They actually came up uh, um, with a name for them, and they were called the Lost Boys. So in 1970, September 25th, Jeffrey Allen Ronan, he was Conan, Conan, Conan Jeffrey Allen Conan was 18 years old. December 13th, James Eugene Glass was 14 years old. December 13th, Danny Michael Yates was 14 years old. In 1971, January 30th, Donald Wayne Waldrop was 15 years old. January 30th, Jerry Lynn Waldrop was 13 years old. March 9th, Randall Lee Harvey was 15 years old. May 29th, David William Hillegeist was 13 years old. May 29th, Gregory Malley Winkle, 16 years old. And August 17th, Reuben Willard Watson Haney at 17 years old. 1972, March 24th, Frank Anthony Aguirre was 18 years old. April 20th, Mark Stephen Scout was 17 years old. May 21st, Johnny Ray DeLome, 16 years old. May 21st, Billy Jean Balch Jr., 17 years old. July 19th, Stephen Kent Sickman, 17 years old. August 21st, Roy Eugene Button, 19 years old. October 2nd, Wally J. Simino, 14 years old. 
October 2nd, Richard Edward Hembry, 13 years old. November 1st, Willard Kamen um, Branch Jr., 18 years old. November 15th, Richard Allen Kempner, 19 years old. In 1973, February 1st, Joseph Allen Lyles, 17 years old. June 4th, William Ray Lawrence, 15 years old. June 15th, Raymond Stanley Blackburn, 20 years old. July 7th, Homer Luis Garcia, 15 years old. July 12th, John Manning Sellers, at 17 years old. July 19th, Michael Anthony Balch, 15 years old. <clears throat> Excuse me. July 25th, Marty Ray Jones, 18 years old. July 25th, Charles Carey Cobble, 17 years old. And August 3rd, James Stanton Dramala, 13 years old. And those are all the victims they are. of the Candyman. <clears throat> so go ahead, Britt. I'm going to, yeah, go ahead and tell us your last bit. Yeah, just here. a few things at the end. Um, in 1976, Houston authorities announced recent investigations of child pornography <clears throat> had, excuse me, <laughs> had linked um, other local pedophiles with Coral's murder ring, but no prosecutions were in the works or ever came of it. Um, in 1994, at the suggestion of a Louisiana art dealer, Henley began to paint as a prison and hobby and as a means for generating income for him and his mother. Um, he refuses to draw anything violent or exploitative in nature. And his quote, all I ask is that they may look at my artwork first. May they look at my artwork first. It may be the only contribution I can give to, to society. To which I say, fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, what you can't draw, draw anything because you just have seen too much of it with your own eyes, I guess, you yeah. know? Um, and after all these years, one boy does remain unidentified. Uh, they believe him to be about 15 years old. He was found wearing a Catalina-branded striped swimsuit and a shirt with a mysterious combination of letters and numbers handwritten below a design um, that they think pos would possibly be a military symbol meaning maybe he had a relative in the Vietnam conflict. Um, there has been speculation that this could be a boy named Bobby French, but uh, so far investigators have not confirmed anything. Anyone with information is asked to call the Harris County of Forensic Scientists, Science, Sciences at 832-927-5001. Um, in 2018, a Polaroid surfaced that authorities think could be another victim of corals. It shows a young boy possibly handcuffed in what appears to be the trunk of a car. Uh, ABC's filmmaker Josh Vargas found the photo while he was doing research, actually, for a movie. Um, he was going through Henley's belongings, yeah. and he found them. That ABC stuff is really crazy. I think I've seen, like, uh, some of it. Really? And it's, like, the ABCs of murder, and it's, like, it's like if, I, if I'm correct and that's what it is. I'm thinking ABC, like, ABC, the television network. Oh, okay. It could be. I don't know. Okay, yeah. I'm I just thought, because sure. filmmaker, yeah. so I just assumed, you know, but, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I assume it, it is, network, yeah, but. yeah. Um, in the book, The Man with the Candy, uh, which was a book written about these crimes, author Jack Olson uh, suggests that other victims may be buried near the Coral Candy Factory, but authorities haven't pursued any action. And, I mean, Henley even himself said that he knows there's more bodies out there somewhere. Yeah, at least four, he said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Timothy Curley, he was the only only known surviving male victim of corals who was supposed to die. Uh, 2008 is the first time that he ever, he ever publicly spoke about his story um, to ABC Houston. And... A direct quote from him, it was one day it was one day of my life. I have two choices, either accept it and move on or kill myself. When someone ties you to a board, the odds are pretty good you're not going to walk out of there. He described the scene to them as complete madness, complete madness and terror. 
That was my alarm, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he described the scene as an absolute, absolute madness and terror while Coral was threatening to cut off his arm and preparing to rape him. Oh, my God. He said, Dean stood up, and I saw him change into a different person. There was somebody inside him, and it wasn't him. It was a spirit from hell. Which chills. Yeah. Terrifying. As of 2008, um, he never... He had never reached out to Henley in prison, and he has no idea what he would say if he did. Uh, quote, I, do, I don't know if I would shake his hand and say thank you or beat the out of him. 35 years, and I still don't know. Which, I mean, what yeah. would you do? That's yeah, crazy. I don't, yeah, I don't know I either. can't imagine. Yeah, me either. Uh, unfortunately, Tim Curley did end up committing suicide in 2009, which is That's very so sad. sad. Yeah, yeah, he just, it's like, with all of those, you know, quotes from him, it's like, Almost yeah. like he just couldn't live with it anymore. Exactly, you know? and I can't imagine. I can't either, yeah. Um, as a closing note, I have the mother and father of James Dramala, Dramala are the last surviving parents of Coral's known victims. And now when Brooks passed away this past year, they did an interview, um, and they were quoted as saying, Brooks' death means they no longer have to go through the agonizing ritual of attending his parole hearings and having to relive their son's disappearance and death. But uh, beyond that, yeah, they were happy to see him go, which yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, definitely. I can't imagine either because as long as they're alive, they can continue to make appeals. I mean, there's still a oh, chance yeah. they can be freed, you know what I mean? So, and At least it's one down. Yeah, you know, that yeah. They don't have to... And I know these can, parents can make their own appeals to fight to make, you know, to send in reasons why they should not be freed, you know? Yeah. And I would hope that most of the time, especially with such think, brutality... Yeah. You know, that, that these judges or whoever sees why they wouldn't, why these parents wouldn't want these monsters on the streets, you know? So, but thankfully, that's not going to happen with any of these three. Yeah. Woo. Yeah. That was so a long one. it was. Thank you guys so much. We hope that you enjoy um, part two. Um, you know, we will of course be back next Sunday with a new case for you. Um, until then you can find us on Facebook at true crimes, untold podcast, or on Instagram at the same handle, true crimes, untold podcast. And we're also located on Spotify, anchor, Google podcast, breaker, uh, podcast, cast radio public. So you can literally listen to us anywhere, anywhere you want to. So go and listen and um, enjoy these fucked up cases <laughs> as much as we like to tell you yeah. them, okay? You have a wonderful night. Bye, guys. See ya.